When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Dead America, Heartland Part 6. Dead America, The Third Week, Book 12. Written by Derek Slayton. Narrated by P.J. Morgan. Chapter 1. Day 0 plus 21. Captain Kersey sat on the front porch of a tiny one-bedroom house, looking out towards the interstate. As he nursed a weak cup of coffee, he admired the natural beauty of the tiny town of a few hundred, roughly a hundred miles down the I-90 from Seattle. As he enjoyed the brief moment of calm, several trucks rolled by, filled to the brim with troops. All of them headed west towards the front lines of what was about to be one of the most important battles in human history. He tried to put that thought out of his head, knowing he needed to concentrate on the task at hand, rather than worrying about the importance of it. He wondered vaguely if Eisenhower had the same sorts of thoughts before D-Day. Morning, Captain, David Fraser greeted, interrupting Kersey's musing. The captain smiled. Morning, David, he replied. Can I get you a cup of coffee? Not the strongest you'll ever have, but gets the job done. The communications expert shook his head. No thanks, already downed a couple of energy drinks this morning. Breakfast of champions, Kersey replied with a smile. I can respect that. Yeah, my mom would always yell at me for pounding those, saying it was going to put me in an early grave, David said, tilting his head back towards the early morning sun. Kersey sighed. All it took was a zombie apocalypse for you to prove her wrong. They shared a small laugh, and then the younger man shook his head. Kind of fitting, since she would think me being right would be a sign of the end times. Kersey raised his mug in a toast, before downing the last of his brew. He set it down on the railing and stood up, glancing at his watch that read 6.55 a.m. Guess we should get a move on, he said. Supposed to talk to the general in five. David nodded and waved for him to follow. We're set up and ready to go over at the school a couple of blocks up. Good, good, Kersey replied as they began to walk. Has your team been able to compile the overnight reports? David reached into his back pocket and pulled out some rolled up papers, handing them over. Sorry for the informal presentation there, he said, scratching the back of his head. Kersey flipped through the handwritten notes. Information is all here, and it's delivered on time, he declared. No apologies necessary. The two of them walked a couple of blocks through the sleepy town towards the school as the captain leafed through the information. Hey, Cap, 
Private Kowalski called out, the front door of a tiny house nearby as they approached. What sort of chaos you have on tap for us today? Kersey looked up and grinned. Grab your shit and come on. I can see what I can dig up for you. Kowalski returned the smile and leaned back into the house, throwing his sniper rifle over his shoulder and picking up a small bag from the floor. Hey, Johnson, let's get a move on, he bellowed into the building. We got shenanigans to get into. He hopped off of the porch like an excited child and jogged over to a superior and communications expert. A moment later, Corporal Johnson slogged out the front door, rubbing sleep from his eyes. For the love of God, Kowalski, why are you waking me up this early in the morning? He groaned through a yawn. Because you drew the short straw and had to bunk with me, the sniper replied brightly. Plus, aren't you ready to blow some shit up? Johnson rubbed his eyes some more and disappeared back into the house, grumbling all the while. Are we sure he's coming? David raised an eyebrow. Kowalski cocked his head. Cap, if you want me to, I can go jump on his bed until he gets up. I don't think that'll be necessary, Kersey replied with a chuckle. Oh, I don't mind, really, the sniper insisted eagerly. The captain turned to David. Have any of the doctors made it to town yet? Pretty sure they're still attached to the cleanup crew down in Ellensburg, David replied. Kersey glanced at Kowalski, who crossed his arms. Yeah, maybe we'll just give him a minute, the sniper conceded. A few moments later, the large redneck came out of the house, squinting with his hair all over the place. He adjusted his assault rifle on his shoulder, and a small bag hung from one of his arms. There's our little sleepyhead, Kowalski cooed sweetly. Johnson groaned. Captain, requesting permission to kneecap Kowalski? Denied, Kersey replied and then raised a hand. But I will allow a Charlie horse. The corporal finally grinned through his sleepiness and lashed a knuckle punch to the back of the sniper's calf. Kowalski hissed and hobbled in a circle for a few moments, muttering curses under his breath. Appreciate that, Captain, Johnson said, suddenly much more awake. Kersey inclined his head. Just trying to be the best leader I can, he replied, and then led the quartet moving again towards the school. Captain, I got you set up with a private communication suite in the first classroom, David said as they entered the front lobby. If you two want to follow me, I'll show you to the cafeteria. Hell yeah, Kowalski clenched a victorious fist. I could go for some breakfast. David smiled. I like the enthusiasm, he said. We found a bunch of canned and powdered ingredients and they have a gas range. Shouldn't take you any time at all to whip something up. Kowalski's excitement faded from his face as it dawned on him that he'd be doing the cooking. See if you can't whip up some more coffee, too, Kersey added, and the sniper glared at him. That's an order. Johnson chuckled as he put his arm around his fellow soldier and dragged him away towards the kitchen. Do you need anything, Captain? David asked. Kersey shook his head. No, I should be good he replied. I'll meet you in the cafeteria once I get done with the general. David nodded and rushed off to join the other two. Kersey entered the classroom and pulled up a seat at the teacher's desk where they'd set up a communication station. He slid on the headset and flipped the machine on. Command, do you copy? He asked. After a few moments of silence, 
The line came to life. Command here. This is Captain Kersey, he said. Please hold for General Stevens, the operator replied. Kersey leaned back in his chair, looking out the classroom window, as another set of trucks rolled away down to the interstate, filled with dozens more soldiers headed off to the front lines. Chapter Two Captain Kersey, good morning. General Stevens' voice came through, and the captain turned away from watching truckloads of troops roll by the window. Good morning, General, he said. What's your status? Stevens asked. Kersey took a deep breath. Presently, our command center is in Thorpe, about a hundred miles from downtown Seattle, he reported. Our front lines have pushed up ahead about 20 miles to the ski resorts. I was hoping that you had been able to push a little further, to be frank, the general admitted. Kersey sighed. I was hoping the same as well, sir, but weather conditions on the roads are making it tricky. Understood, Stevens replied. I will have one of my men here send you an updated weather report, so you can make your preparations. The captain nodded. Appreciate that, sir, he said. How much of the force have you moved up to the front? The general asked. Kersey leaned back in his chair. Currently have about 30,000 troops within 20 miles of our command center, he replied. Got slowed up a bit in Ellensburg with higher than expected resistance, and had to leave several thousand back in Spokane as a cleanup crew. The last thing we want is an outbreak in our rear. Without a doubt, Stevens agreed. Kersey rubbed a hand over his head. The bulk of the force is waiting to roll out from the airport and military base to the west of Spokane, he said. We're doing everything we can to find transportation, but it's slim pickings in these rural mountain towns. I have full confidence that you'll get it done, the general said firmly. The captain smiled thinly. Thank you, sir. Update from my end, Stevens began. The last of the troops you'll be receiving are on the trains and headed your way. I don't have exact numbers, but you should have a final count of 165,000 in your neck of the woods within 48 hours. Kersey's brow furrowed. 165? He shook his head. I was expecting to receive more. And I was expecting to send more, the general admitted. But the fallout from the Kansas City debacle is far higher than initially estimated. Not only that, but we had to divert some troops to other vital priorities like the caravans. The captain nodded. Understood, he replied as confidently as he could. I can work with whatever you send me. Of that I have no doubt, Stevens replied. What else can you tell me, Captain? Kersey leaned forward and grabbed the papers that David had given him, flipping through and stopping on a crudely drawn map of Clay Ellum. He ran his finger over the big circle on the outskirts of town, reading Municipal Airport. We have a lead on a municipal airport just up the road from our current position, he explained. Doesn't appear to be big enough to land military planes, but we have commandeered enough consumer-grade aircraft to mount a paratrooper campaign. Excellent, Stevens replied. I will be sure to let the invasion planners be aware of this. We don't have a big margin of error on this assault, so having more options will help out a great deal. Kersey nodded. Glad I can help, sir. Speaking of which, the general continued. I'm scheduled to be on an invasion planning meeting with the president and his team this afternoon. I would like you to join me. The captain blinked at the receiver for a moment before asking, you, 
you want me on the call with the president? Yes, I do, Stevens replied. To be blunt, you're the only person to successfully lead a large-scale assault against these things, so your insights could help out a great deal. After the colossal fuck-up in Kansas City, the higher-ups are a bit on edge, so I'd like you to help put their minds at ease on this invasion. Kersey nodded sharply. Yes, sir, I will share what I know. Thank you, Captain, the general said. When I have the official time, I will make sure your people know. Kersey took a deep breath, still stunned. Thank you, sir. Good luck today, Stephen said. And keep me updated on that airport. Yes, sir, the captain replied. And then the line went dead. He slumped back in his chair, mind reeling that he would be briefing the president on the invasion. He looked out the window at more men moving up the interstate towards the front lines, and his gut tightened. The advice he would be giving that day could be the difference between them living and dying. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Chapter 3 Kersey walked out of the classroom, his head still spinning a little. He ran through everything he'd have to present to the president, flipping through it over and over in his head. As he headed down the hallway, the front door opened behind him, and he turned to see Sergeant Copeland enter the building. Morning, Captain, Copeland greeted. Kersey smiled. Morning, Sergeant. How's it going? Anxious to get back out to the fight. Copeland replied, cracking his knuckles. The captain's brow furrowed in confusion. Who's stopping you, he asked. The field dock in Ellensburg, the sergeant replied with a scoff. I took a hard fall off of a second-story banister when three of those things came out of an upstairs bedroom, banged my shoulder up pretty good, and the dock put me on a 24-hour lockdown pending a reevaluation. Rest of my team stayed behind, which is even more infuriating. Kersey shook his head. I'm guessing you disagree with the doc's assessment? Permission to speak freely, sir? Copeland asked. The captain nodded. Always. If I listened to pansy-ass motherfuckers like that doctor, I'd still be a private, the sergeant said. We're in a war, and the enemy doesn't care if I banged up my shoulder or not. Kersey cracked a smile. Come on, let's get you some breakfast and a mission, he suggested. Copeland grinned and followed his superior to the cafeteria. As they entered, they stopped short at the sight of Kowalski standing behind the serving counter, wearing an apron and a hairnet, holding a giant ladle. All right, all right, the sniper said, mimicking an old lady voice. No shoving, plenty of this slop for everyone. 
He dished up some powdered eggs and potatoes onto serving trays and shoved them towards Johnson and David with a smile. I think you missed your calling, bud, Johnson said, shaking his head. Kowalski reached under the counter. Hold up, I think I got some dessert for you, he said, and then fumbled around before popping his hand up, middle finger extended. You like bird, don't you? Johnson barked a laugh and grabbed his tray of food. He's a bit of a character, ain't he? Copeland asked with a chuckle. Kersey shook his head and smiled. Yeah, he's a live one, he admitted. But he's the best shot I've ever seen. And loyal as they come, too. Men like that are hard to find, the sergeant said. Kersey nodded. Which is why I've kept him and the rest of my crew as close as I can. How was your corporal doing? Copeland asked. I heard what went down on the bridge in Spokane. Can't imagine what that was like. The captain took a deep breath. Bretz is doing well, he replied. I've given him a bit of downtime since all we're really doing is clean up and waiting. He's a strong man. He'll bounce back when the time comes. He's lucky to have you as a CO, Copeland said. Known some over the years that would have just told him to man up and thrown him back to the wolves. Kersey shook his head, gaze darkening. Well, you don't have to worry about that under me. So who do I talk to about being permanently assigned to your group? Copeland asked with a playful smirk. The captain chuckled. I'll put in the request with the general. Appreciate that, captain, the sergeant said with a warm smile. Kowalski raised his ladle and waved at the captain and the large, dark-skinned sergeant. Hey, Cap, come on over. Get the best food you're gonna find in this town. Johnson picked up his spoon and dropped some of the powdered egg back into his bowl with a grimace. Be warned, Cap, that's a low bar to hurdle. Hush, you, or you're not getting seconds, Kowalski scolded in his old lady voice again. Johnson shuddered. That's not exactly a threat there, Miss Lunch Lady. Kersey approached and slid an empty tray over to his sniper. Kowalski, not sure if you and Johnson have met Sergeant Copeland before? Heard some stories from Spokane, the sniper replied, straightening his shoulders and using his regular voice. Damn fine work on the island, Sergeant. Copeland inclined his head to him. Just doing my job. Humble, I dig it, Kowalski replied with a grin. I just figure there's only room for one hotshot in every group, the sergeant joked. The sniper raised his ladle again in a victory pose. Happy to fill that role. He scooped some food for the duo, and then Kersey motioned to the table where David and Johnson were sitting. Kowalski, get yourself a plate too and come on over, he instructed. Got a mission for the three of you. The sniper complied and followed them over to the table, all of them clustered around. About eight miles to the west of us is a town called Clay Ellum, the captain began. Don't really care that much about the town itself, but on the eastern side of it is a municipal airport. I need you three to scope it out and come up with a game plan to secure it. Kowalski raised his hand. Kersey pointed to him with a smirk. Yes, the troublemaker in the back. Just this morning, I've seen 30 truckloads of men roll down the interstate, the sniper said. Why haven't they just stopped off to clear it? The captain folded his arms on the table in front of him. Because they are setting up camps at the ski resorts further up the road, he explained. We're going to be moving tens of thousands of troops up there, so that's the priority. Now, if you find you need some reinforcements, I can pull them for a short time, but only after we know what we're dealing with. Any idea on what kind of resistance we're gonna be running into? Copeland asked. 
David swallowed his last mouthful and set down his spoon. The town had a population of about 18,000 pre-war, so it's safe to assume that there would be a fair amount of them in the center of town, he said. However, the airport is a mile or so to the east and off the beaten path, so it should be relatively safe. If I had a bullet for every time I've heard that, Johnson piped up, I'd have enough ammo to take over Seattle on my own. Kowalski rolled his eyes. With the way you shoot, you'd need twice that much. Johnson scooped up some eggs and flicked the spoon like a catapult, sending a glop of yellow goo towards the sniper, who ducked just in time. Any other questions? Kersey asked. Copeland cocked his head. Do we have a protocol on survivors? If you can safely extract them, do so and radio in, the captain replied. We have chopper pilots on standby that can usher them back to the camp at Spokane. The sergeant nodded. Understood. Anything else? Kersey asked. Everyone looked around at each other, but nobody spoke up. Okay, finish up your breakfast and head out. Sergeant Copeland is going to be in charge. He shot a playful look at his sniper. So Kowalski, I expect you to be on your best behavior. Kowalski exaggerated a pout, and a chuckle rippled through the men. Copeland took a bite of his breakfast and grimaced. You know, I'm hopeful that you shoot better than you cook, he joked. The sniper held up a finger. Trust me, there's no issue there. Yeah, but he only shoots half as good as he runs his mouth, Johnson quipped. In that case, we're in good hands, Copeland replied, and the room erupted in laughter. Kersey gave him an appraising nod, happy to know that the man could hold his own with his crew. Chapter Four Copeland drove the SUV containing the dynamic soldier trio down the interstate towards Clay Ellum. Johnson stared down at the crudely drawn map in his lap before pointing to the exit ramp. Pretty sure this is it, he said. Copeland nodded. Place ain't that big, so better to get off early than to overshoot it, he said. Easy to do with these one-stoplight towns, Kowalski agreed. Happened more than once this week. Copeland cocked his head. Well, you just worry about shooting, he said, and I'll handle the directions. Works for me, Sarge, Kowalski said brightly. Copeland pulled off the interstate finding a small road leading to the north with a tiny sign that read airport with an arrow pointing forward. Should be about a mile up, Johnson said. Gear up then, just in case, Copeland said as he drove. The soldiers checked their weapons as they reached the edge of the airport. The sergeant parked the vehicle at the end of the runway before the three of them got out. The airport was small, only three hangars, a small tower, and a building attached to it. There were three zombies roaming around the runway about 150 yards away. This looks like a walk in the park, Johnson said with a relieved smile. Copeland shook his head. Nothing is a walk in the park until we find out what's in those buildings. Johnson winced. Good point. The sergeant scanned the area, focusing in on the trio of zombies on the runway. Well, Kowalski, everybody including you says you're a hell of a shot, he said. Why don't you prove it? He motioned to the creatures staggering around in the distance. Challenge accepted, the sniper replied with a grin. He pulled his rifle from his back and glanced through the scope before lowering the gun. He licked his finger and raised it up, playfully murmuring to himself as if he were gauging the wind speed. 
Then he fiddled with some of the dials on his scope to adjust it. Johnson rolled his eyes. If you moved any slower, those things are just going to deteriorate on their own. Patience is a virtue, Kowalski sang, and then took a knee into firing position. He raised his weapon and honed in on the zombies downrange. Left, right, or center, he asked. Copeland chuckled at the young man's bravado. Left, he said. Within seconds, Kowalski adjusted his aim and fired. The rotted figure on the left flew backwards and fell to the tarmac, motionless. Left or right, the sniper asked, without taking his eye from his scope. Copeland grinned. Right. Again, Kowalski quickly aimed and fired, dropping the ghoul on the right. Without pausing to ask, he fired again, taking the head off of the last zombie and standing up, lowering his weapon with a smirk on his face. Am I everything I'm cracked up to be? He teased. The sergeant barked a laugh and clapped him on the back. I would say hell yeah, but I'm afraid that kind of feedback would go straight to your head. A thousand percent right there, Sarge. Johnson cut in. Copeland shook his head, still smiling. Come on, let's go check out the hangars. He led the trio onto the airport grounds, casually walking across the runway towards the first hangar. As they approached the building, he and Johnson readied their assault rifles, while Kowalski shouldered his sniper rifle and readied his sidearm. They reached the door and the sniper took the door handle, while Copeland and Johnson prepared to breach it. When you flip it open, wait for my signal to go inside, the sergeant said, and waited for the nod of agreement before raising his hand in a signal to open the door. Kowalski turned the knob and shoved the door hard, before stepping back and raising his gun. It only took a second for a zombie to appear in the doorway, and Copeland quickly put it down with a single shot. Almost immediately, several moans erupted from the cavernous space. Back up, back up, Copeland demanded, and the trio backpedaled as a dozen creatures slowly pushed their way out of the door. Nobody fires until I do, he instructed. He waited until several of the ghouls cleared the door before firing not wanting to plug up the doorway. When he opened fire, the others joined him, and the trio made quick work of the dozen creatures until they were a heap on the ground. They stayed poised for action, just in case there were more inside. But there was only silence. Copeland inched towards the door, peering inside. He stuck his head in and let out a sharp whistle, and as the echo faded, he listened closely hearing no other signs of undead abound. I think we're clear, he said, and then headed in, the two soldiers bringing up the rear, gun still at the ready. Copeland lowered his weapon and headed for the large rolling door. Keep watch, he instructed. I'll get us some light. He found the lock, unlatching the door from the wall, and pushed it open. He let in about ten feet of air and light, brightening the hangar. The trio lowered their weapons when they saw two small single-engine planes and a mechanics area on the far side, but no more zombies. Wow, Johnson breathed. Actually looks like some of this stuff might be usable. Kowalski nodded as he approached one of the planes. Hopefully we have some mechanics left, because I don't know about you, but I'd feel a lot better if someone checked these babies before we hopped on board. Not sure what the big deal is. Johnson teased. You've flown in worse. 
The sniper shuddered. Yeah, and I still have nightmares about it, he said. Copeland shook his head at the back and forth and opened his mouth to say something, just as gunshots rang out in the distance. The soldiers immediately rushed back out to the runway, looking in the direction of the town. Another shot cracked. The sergeant narrowed his eyes. Too far away to be firing at us, he said. Maybe they heard our shots and are trying to get our attention, Kowalski asked. Copeland nodded. Could be, he agreed. So what do you boys say? You game to check it out? Sounds a lot more interesting than clearing out hangars, the sniper mused. The sergeant motioned for the SUV. Saddle up then, let's go save us some civilians. Chapter five. Copeland drove cautiously down the main road leading into downtown, if one could call it downtown, when it was just three blocks of one-story businesses and little else. As they crested the hill, they could see straight through a pack of ghouls on the far side. The sergeant stopped the vehicle. Looks like a crowd, Johnson said. Copeland nodded. Kowalski, get us some numbers he instructed. The sniper nodded and peered out the window, making sure the coast was clear. He stepped out onto the road and looked through his scope at the horde ahead. The group was fairly dense, but small, and focused on a standalone building on the corner. From his angle, he couldn't tell what the building was, but what was important was that there were no signs of life. Talk to me, Kowalski, Copeland said through his open window. The sniper cocked his head. Seventy or eighty of those things congregating around a single building, he said. See what has them riled up, the sergeant asked. No, sir, Kowalski replied. Copeland pointed to the horde. Squeeze one off, he said. Let whoever was firing know that we're here. The sniper took aim, picking a zombie in the middle of the pack. With one shot, the bullet ripped through its head, dropping it to the asphalt. They were far enough away that only a couple of the creatures picked up on the sound, looking around with mouths open, but couldn't seem to find the source of it. The soldiers waited for a response, which came in the form of a gunshot. One of the zombies that was beginning to wander away from the pack dropped to the ground. Kowalski peered through his scope towards the store, seeing a guy with dreadlocks standing on top, waving wildly at them. He responded with his own wave. Found him he reported. Hippie dude on top of the store. How do you want to play it, Sarge? Johnson asked. Copeland rubbed his chin. Probably not a good idea to get in a stand-up fight with that many, he mused. We did pass that truck rental place a few blocks back, Kowalski pointed out. Those things should have enough heft to plow through them. Copeland nodded. I'm game if y'all are, he said. Let's do it, Johnson agreed. Kowalski waved to the survivor, holding up five fingers and hoping that he would understand they'd be five minutes. He looked through the scope and saw the guy giving him a thumbs up. A few minutes later, the trio pulled up to the moving truck rental place with two large moving vans in the lot. Copeland got out and led them up to the office door, a small three-room building with a glass front. He knocked on the glass, waiting for a second to see if there was any movement inside, where there wasn't. He tried the knob, but it was locked tight, so he quickly flipped the assault rifle around and smashed it through the glass. 
Johnson raised an eyebrow. Copeland shrugged. They're a moving company. They have insurance that'll cover this, he quipped. The soldiers cracked a smile and followed him inside, doing a quick sweep just to make sure nothing was lurking inside. Clear, Kowalski announced, and the sergeant lowered his rifle. Let's get those keys, boys, he said, and they set to work. The trio dug through the building, searching every wall and drawer, until Kowalski finally found a box on the back desk with multiple sets of keys inside. We're golden, he declared, as he pulled the rings out. He tossed a set to Copeland and headed back outside. One of the vans was slightly larger than the other, with the lift gate on the back being chest high. The smaller one was barely waist high. Okay, here's the plan, Copeland began, turning to them. Kowalski, I want you in that smaller one. You're gonna plow straight through them, stopping at the building. We'll take out the windshield before you go, so you can get on top of the building. You're gonna be my eye on the sky, just in case the noise we make attracts any other groups of those things that might be in the area. The sniper nodded. Not a problem, he said. So what are we doing? Johnson asked. We're gonna be on mop-up duty, Copeland explained. This one is high enough off of the ground that we can safely stand on it and pick them off one by one. Johnson raised an eyebrow. Did we bring enough ammo for that? He asked. The sergeant looked around the parking lot, seeing that the building next door was doing some light construction, so there was cheap orange plastic fencing around the lot. He headed over to one of the metal posts holding it up, wrapping his hands around it, and giving a heave to pull it out of the ground. He smacked it on the pavement a few times to clear off the dirt, revealing a spike on the end of it. He tossed it to Johnson. Think you can make do with that? he asked. His companion examined the spike, and then gave a simulated thrust. Yeah, this can work, he replied with a nod. Might want to grab a few extras just in case they get lodged in the head. Good call, Copeland agreed. Let's load a few up and hit the road. Johnson tossed his to Kowalski, who headed over to his truck and slammed the spiky end into the windshield. It shattered into a million pieces, shards raining down all over the front seat. He blinked in disbelief at what a moron he was. Didn't think that one through, did you? Johnson teased. The sniper shook his head. I did not, he admitted. But as the Sarge said, they have insurance. Johnson chuckled at his dumbass partner before grabbing one last spike and tossing it into his van. We'll follow you in, Kowalski, Copeland declared as he climbed up into the driver's seat. The sniper nodded and swept what glass he could from his own seat before hopping in and firing up the big truck. It rumbled for a moment before really springing to life, chugging a little from sitting idle for nearly a month. Once it purred happily and didn't sound like it was about to stall out, he popped it into gear and headed off towards their new battle. As he crested the hill and spotted the zombies, he hit the gas, picking up steam. The roar of the engine alerted several ghouls, causing them to break off from the pack and shamble in his direction. By the time he met them, they'd moved about half a block from the horde. The first zombie practically evaporated from the impact, exploding into a fine, gooey mist. The next few flew backwards into the crowd, which was soon greeted by the front end of the moving van. As soon as he reached the front of the building, 
Kowalski slammed on the brakes to screech to a stop in front of it. The truck jangled about as it rolled over some flailing corpses. The moans rose in volume as the zombies reached for Kowalski, climbing out onto the hood of the truck. He hopped up onto the back, appraising the six-foot gap between the truck and the edge of the roof, which he knew he could easily leap. The hippie appeared through a hole in the roof, offering him a smile, the sun glinting off of his blonde dreadlocks. Hey, man, thanks for coming by, he drawled, voice a little slow. Kowalski waved and jumped across, waiting for the guy to approach him before replying, It's my pleasure, I'm Kowalski. Whoa, Kowal, the guy trailed off for a moment. Kowalski, he cocked his head, eyes squinting. That's a special name, man. I'm Keith. I wish my name was as special as yours. The sniper chuckled. You seem like you're having a good day, Keith. He took a deep whiff of the musky, marijuana-tinged scent of the man. Always, brother, Keith replied. Can't have a bad day when you have the herbal supply that I have. Best in the Northwest, for sure. Kowalski motioned to the building. What kind of shop is this? This is Keith's dispensary, home of the buy one, get one free edible brownie, the hippie replied proudly, spreading his arms. The sniper's grin widened. Oh, I'm definitely doing some shopping before I leave. Well, come on down, Keith replied, waving for him to come forward. I got everything you've ever heard of, and a few things you wish you'd heard of. Kowalski shook his head. Unfortunately, I'm gonna have to put a pin in that, he admitted. Gotta lay down some cover so my friends can take care of that infestation problem at your front door. The hippie furrowed his brow for a moment, as if confused, and then realized what he was talking about. Right on, man, he said. I'm gonna let you do what you need to do. While you do what you're doing, I'll make you up a little care package. If you trust my judgment and all. Nobody else I'd trust. Kowalski replied. Keith's face lit up, and he reached out and hugged the sniper tightly. Kowalski blinked down at him, letting out an awkward laugh, and patted him on the back. All right, you're my man, Keith, he said, gently pushing him back. I'm also Jenny's man, the hippie replied, holding up a finger. Who's downstairs? But don't worry, I'm sure she'll share me with you. He winked and then clambered back down the ladder into the store. The sniper stood there for a moment, staring at the hole, bewildered, unsure if the hippie was joking or not. The sound of a loud horn bleeding from a block away snapped him back into reality. Right, zombies, he muttered, and then ran to the back of the store, pulling out his rifle to do a scan of the immediate area. Outside of a few stragglers, he didn't see anything of note, he ran to the far side of the building, looking out, and only seeing a handful of creatures that way as well. Holy shit, we may have dodged a bullet here. He waved to Copeland, who was outside of the van with Johnson, throwing open the back door to await the creatures moving towards them. As they handled the bulk of the horde, Kowalski moved to the back of the store, picking a target and firing, taking the head clean off. He grinned into the scope. This isn't gonna take long at all. Chapter six. Copeland and Johnson stood in the back of the moving van, 
waiting for the zombies to reach them. The front edge of the horde was about 10 yards away, shambling ever closer as they readied their metal spikes. If you told me three months ago that I'd be standing in the back of a moving truck, ramming metal spikes through the heads of rotting corpses, I can safely say I wouldn't have believed you, Johnson said brightly. Copeland raised an eyebrow. Well, that's true. I find it odd you don't seem too upset at it. Three months ago, I was sweating my balls off in some godforsaken desert, Johnson explained. Not knowing if the guy with the push cart on the corner was trying to sell coconut juice or blow up a city block. Here it's nice and cool, and the enemy just walks right up to me, begging to be put down. He delivered the first strike, driving his weapon through the eye of the closest creature. He quickly pulled it back, and the ghoul dropped to the ground. Copeland nodded thoughtfully. Something to be said about a straight up fight, he agreed, executing a similar quick strike to a zombie closest to him. Plus, I don't go to bed every night, finding sand in places I didn't know sand could get into. He struck twice in quick succession, dropping two more creatures. Hell, I'm pretty sure I still have some sand in my boots from my last tour, Johnson added, taking out two more. Lucky it was just your boot, the sergeant dryly replied. The duo shared a laugh as they delivered vicious head strikes one by one, dropping zombies left and right without putting themselves in any danger. After a good 20 minutes, they were able to put down the last few creatures. Copeland raised his hand to his eyes, squinting up at Kowalski, who waved at them from the roof. How we looking, he called. The sniper grinned. Might have a couple of stragglers wander up in the next 15 or 20 minutes, he replied. Other than that, I took out most of them. How many survivors you got, the sergeant asked. Kowalski jerked a thumb over his shoulder. Got two live ones. Okay, I'll radio in and meet you inside, Copeland replied. Start getting them packed up so we can move out. The sniper saluted him. Yes, sir. He disappeared atop the roof. Copeland pulled out his radio and turned the dial. Captain Kersey, come in, he said. Kersey here, the captain came back immediately. What's the situation, Sergeant? Copeland scanned the pile of corpses below. Exterior of the airport is clear, he reported. Two hangars left to be checked. We retrieved two survivors from the town. Good job, Kersey replied. I'll arrange transport to meet you at the airport in 30. Will that give you enough time to clear the remaining structures? The sergeant nodded. Yes, sir. Is Kowalski nearby? Kersey asked. Copeland squinted to see if Kowalski was still on the roof, but he couldn't see him. No, sir, he's getting the civilians ready for transport, he said. If you would, please instruct him to ride back with the survivors to the base in Spokane, the captain instructed. They're having some issues in Ellensburg, and I'd like him to lead the group in. His point man is Corporal Steed. Copeland cocked his head. Sir, I'd be more than happy to head this mission up myself. I know you would, Sergeant, Kersey replied apologetically. But I'm supposed to be on a conference call with the president in a few hours, and the last thing I need is a doctor yelling at me for letting you back into action against his orders. Copeland barked a laugh. Yes, sir, understood. I'll see you when you get back to town, the captain replied. Kersey out. The sergeant put his radio away and took a deep breath. Come on, let's go see what's taking them so long. He and Johnson hopped down from the truck and skirted the mountain of dead zombies, heading to the front door of the business. 
A wafer-thin blonde leaned in the doorway, eyes pink and glazed. Look, babe, she squealed. More friends. She waved them in and twirled in a circle, motioning to the counter. Keith stood behind it, filling up a plastic bag for Kowalski, who leaned on the bamboo structure casually as he pointed to various strains of weed in the glass containers behind him. Oh, and can I get some of the gold in there? He asked. Keith winked at him. Good eye, my man. Primo stuff. He took a huge handful and tossed it in a bag before sealing it up and handing it over. Copeland crossed his arms. Private, may I ask what in the world you think you're doing? He demanded. Oh, uh, Kowalski stammered, standing at attention. Sorry, Sarge, I was just procuring necessities, he winced. Copeland cocked his head. And you didn't think to take my order before you did? The private stared at him, dumbfounded. What? The sergeant replied sheepishly. Even a badass like myself needs to relax every now and then. The soldiers burst into laughter, Jenny and Keith joining in, though they didn't really know why. I like your friend, Kowalski, Keith drawled, wagging a finger in Copeland's general direction. I'll get you something special, too. He ducked behind the counter, pulling out a fresh bag and picking out some glass jars from the wall. What did the captain have to say? Kowalski asked. Copeland inclined his head to him. He's got a transport coming in for the civilians, he said. And you. The sniper wrinkled his nose. Oh, son of a bitch, he muttered. Now what? I'll brief you on the drive over, the sergeant replied. Keith popped back up from behind the counter, shoving more little baggies into a big bag and handing it over to the burly sergeant. Thank you, sir, Copeland said with a grin. If you want to get your things, we need to get moving. Keith clucked his tongue and gave him a one-fingered salute. I can dig it, man, he said. Babe, grab your bags. We're going on a trip. Jenny let out an excited squeal and skipped off to the back room, Keith stumbling after her. Boy, see if you can wrangle them up, Copeland instructed as he slipped his purchase into his pocket. We leave in five. I'll keep an eye out in the meantime. Chapter seven. Copeland, Kowalski, and Johnson walked up to the third hangar, knocking on the door and listening for sound, not hearing anything. You got anything? The sniper asked. Johnson shook his head. Nothing. It would certainly be nice if this one was clear too, Copeland said, and then nodded to Kowalski. The sniper threw open the door and backed up, the trio waiting for a ghoul to appear, but nothing did. Johnson slipped inside first, sweeping the immediate area. Clear, he said. The others headed in behind him, and Copeland shoved open the big sliding door, revealing an empty hangar, with the exception of a trio of planes on the far side. Kowalski let out a low whistle. Looks like we have our own budget air force, he declared. I know you're joking, Copeland said, as he approached the sniper to appraise the vehicles but we can legit drop 40 men from the sky with the planes we have. Get the right men, and you could cause a hell of a ruckus. Johnson nodded. Ain't that the truth? They turned and headed back outside, strolling for the SUV. Copeland shook his head as they got closer and saw nothing but fog inside. He opened the door and smoke billowed out into the air, 
revealing Jenny and Keith giggling in the back seat together. Well, Johnson, Copeland said with a laugh. Looks like we're hotboxing it back to town. The private shook his head. Hope they found more than those powdered breakfast foods, he said. Doesn't exactly sound like good food for the munchies. Oh, man, here you go, bud, Keith said and reached into his bag, producing a few chocolate bars and a bag of chips. He held out the packages, and Johnson accepted them with a wide grin. You're all right there, Keith, he declared. The stoner smiled and nodded, leaning back in his seat. Before anyone could say anything else, helicopter blades smacking air sounded in the distance. That sounds like you're right, Kowalski, Copeland said. The sniper adjusted the strap for his sniper rifle. You two had better live up your day off for me, he said, pointing at each soldier in turn. Since I'm working, I have to live vicariously through you two. I mean it. I want stories of feet propped up and beers drained. Copeland laughed and gave him a fist bump. I'll do you proud, bud. The chopper landed about 40 yards away, blades still spinning as it waited for them. Kowalski waved to the hippie couple, and when they stepped out of the SUV, he leaned in. Keep your heads down when we get to the chopper, he instructed. Get inside, get buckled up, and hang on. They gave him lazy thumbs up and followed him across the runway. He opened the door and they hopped in, getting themselves buckled in, giggling all the way. Kowalski skirted around and climbed up into the passenger seat, happy to see the pilot was Benny, his favorite cranky Vietnam-era war pilot. He put on his headset and strapped himself in. Hey, Benny, how the hell are you, man? Do I know you? The pilot asked. Yeah, it's me, Kowalski, the sniper replied, pointing to himself. Rescued you from the airport a few days ago? Benny rolled his eyes. Oh, yeah, the guy that pulled me out of my easygoing retirement, he drawled. Oh, damn, man, Kowalski stammered, blinking at him. I'm sorry, I just... The pilot burst into laughter, shaking his head. I'm just fucking with you, man, he barked. Glad to get back into the sky, especially since nobody is shooting at me this time. He winked at his passenger. Tell your friends to hang on to their asses, because here we go. Kowalski turned to give the hippies a thumbs up and blinked in shock when he saw them leaning on each other, fast asleep. Man, that has got to be some good shit, he muttered, and then gave his thumbs up to the pilot instead. We're good, he declared. Benny nodded and lifted off, heading towards the airport in Spokane. Chapter 8 Kowalski looked out over the infield at the Spokane airport, studying the hive of activity. There were thousands of troops broken into groups, going through drills. Large tents dotted the landscape, serving as makeshift barracks. A handful of attack helicopters sat in the far corner. Man, they've been busy this past week, the sniper mused. Benny nodded. This shit has gotten crazy, man, he declared. Same thing over at the military base nearby. Wall-to-wall man and machinery. Not sure exactly what you boys are planning, but it's gotta be big. I'll level with you, Kowalski replied with a deep intake of breath. I talk to the captain every day, and he's clued into everything. I don't even think they know what they're doing yet. Benny pursed his lips. Well, if that don't fill you with confidence, I don't know what will. See, military hasn't changed all that much since your day, has it? The sniper quipped. The pilot barked a laugh. 
Hell no, it hasn't, he agreed. Glad to be on the civilian side of things this time around. Sure you don't want to trade spots with me? Kowalski asked as they touched down gently on the tarmac. Benny smirked at him. Get the fuck out of my chopper. Hey, I got a personal question for you. The sniper began as he unclipped his seatbelt. The pilot jerked a thumb over his shoulder. No, I'm not babysitting these two. Kowalski laughed, shaking his head. We got them here, so we did our job. There's someone else's problem now, he said. So what's your question? Benny asked, cocking his head. The sniper grinned. Do you partake of the herb? You mean smoke pot? The pilot asked, blinking at him. Fuck, man. I'm in my 60s, everything hurts, and I still have NOM flashbacks. I take everything I can fucking get. Kowalski chuckled and reached into his pocket, pulling out one of the plastic bags from Keith and handing it over. Just don't tell anybody where you got it from, he warned. Although, if you do babysit these two, there's a good chance they'll give you a little more. Well, call me Susie and give me refrigerator privileges, Benny gushed as he took the bag with wide eyes. Because I'm a babysitter now. Kowalski cracked up and shook the pilot's hand before slipping out of the helicopter. He looked around the airfield and headed towards a couple of people standing around the attack choppers. He let out a low whistle as he admired the machinery. Man, that's some heavy-duty stuff you got there, he said. Full payload, can level a couple of city blocks and have enough firepower left to take out a platoon, the pilot boasted, patting the side of the vehicle. Kowalski laughed. Glad you're on our side, he said, shaking his head. You should be, the pilot replied with a smirk. The sniper cocked his head. What's the range on these things, he asked. About 300 miles, give or take, came the reply. Kowalski pursed his lips, face falling. Damn, sorry to hear that. Why, the pilot asked, brow furrowing. Because we're going to battle right at about 300 miles away from here, Kowalski explained. So unless you're doing suicide runs, I don't think you'll be doing us a whole lot of good. The pilot crossed his arms. You do know we can land on carriers, right? He asked haughtily. And there's water next to Seattle? Kowalski blinked at him, realizing the depth of his own moronic brain. So anyway, he stammered, trying desperately to change the subject. Do you have any idea where Corporal Steed is? The pilot pointed to an enclosed tent about 150 yards away. Try the command center there, he instructed. If he isn't in there, somebody will know where to point you. Appreciate it, Kowalski replied and hurried away towards the tent. The scale of everything overwhelmed him, the men running about, doing drills, loading stuff up into trucks. If those at the top are smart enough to listen to the cap, he thought, we might actually get through this. Kowalski reached the command tent and ducked inside, running right into an MP standing guard. State your business, the MP demanded, holding out a hand. The sniper blinked at him. I'm Private Kowalski and, sir, this is a command tent the MP cut in. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Kowalski straightened his shoulders. I'm Private Kowalski, and Captain Kersey sent me from the front lines to rendezvous with Corporal Steed, he amended. The MP regarded him for a moment, and then nodded. Wait here. As he walked off, Kowalski scanned the room. There were a few dozen desks set up, 
various charts dotting boards along the far side of the tent. People worked furiously, scribbling and calculating and leaning over maps together. After a few moments, the MP came back with a man in his 30s, moderately built with shiny jet black hair. I'm Corporal Steed, the man declared. You Kowalski? The sniper saluted and nodded. Yes, sir, he said. Walk with me, the corporal said, and headed out of the tent without looking back. Kowalski trotted to catch up, keeping stride with him as they walked towards a fleet of consumer buses that were being loaded up with men. Your captain gave me the heads up you were coming, so I started loading up the men, Steed said, motioning to the buses. How many? Kowalski asked. The corporal turned to him. I got about 800 armed and ready to go. That's it? The sniper blurted. Afraid so, Steed replied with a nod. The higher-ups have us doing training exercises, breaching drills, the works. Whatever they're sending us into is gonna be a shit show if this is any indication. Kowalski crossed his arms. I was here for the Battle of Spokane, he said. You and your men keep your heads about you and you'll be fine. I hope you're right, Steed replied. After some of the horror stories from Kansas City, I'm not exactly holding my breath. The sniper shook his head. It's a different ball game up here. Understood, the corporal replied. He led them over to the lead bus, where the last man was climbing aboard. You got a fleet of buses and a small army of men. I had the drivers patch in their radios, so you should be able to deliver whatever message you need from the lead bus here. Other than that, I got nothing. Kowalski blinked at him. You're not coming with us? No, I'm coordinating the breach training, so these boys are all yours, Steed explained. The sniper paused and then asked, can you do me a favor? If I can, the corporal replied. Can you let Captain Kersey know we're on the road and that I'll give him an update when I'm in communication range? Kowalski asked. Steed nodded. I'll do it first thing when I get back. Kowalski nodded in thanks and watched for a beat as the corporal headed off. He looked down the line of 20 or so buses and then hopped aboard the lead vehicle. Are we ready, sir? The driver asked. Kowalski nodded. Take us out. The driver closed the doors and dropped the bus into gear. It lurched forward, and Kowalski had to catch himself from falling on his face. This prompted a ripple of laughter through the men. He smirked and then picked up the microphone, turning to the driver. This patched into all the buses, he asked. The driver flipped a switch on the dash and then gave him a thumbs up. You're good to go, he said. Kowalski put the microphone to his mouth. All right, you chuckle fucks, listen up, he declared. My name is Kowalski, and I was at the tip of the spear that drove deep into the heart of Spokane. Well, you've been lounging around in the middle of fucking Kansas. I've had my ass on the front lines for the last three weeks. He held up a finger and pointed at the men before him. You better pay close attention for the next couple of hours, because I'm gonna tell you how to survive the mountain of shit we're headed into. He stared down at them, no trace of humor left on their faces. He raised his chin in the dead silence and said, Goof off, and you're gonna get eaten. Chapter nine. Yes, sir, your man took off about 15 minutes ago, Corporal Steed said, his burly voice coming through Kersey's radio. Not sure exactly where you're sending them, but they're on the way. The captain nodded. Thank you for all of your help, Corporal, he said. 
I'll be in touch. He set the mic down beside David. Are there any other pressing needs? He asked. The communications expert dug through some papers on his desk and then shook his head. I think we got it all under control, Captain, he said. If you want to head back to your personal comm room so you can get focused for your call with the president, we'll handle it from here. Appreciate it, Kersey replied, and then headed back to the hallway. He paused and then turned towards the cafeteria. There were several men having some lunch, a few soldiers behind the counter. He was almost disappointed that they weren't dressed up in nets and aprons like Kowalski had been, having taken his lunch lady job so seriously. As he approached the counter, the man in front of him stood at attention. At ease, soldier, Kersey said. The man relaxed. What can I get you, sir? He asked. Could really use some coffee, the captain admitted. The worker chewed his lip for a moment, turning to his buddies who shrugged. Sir, if you can give me a few minutes, I can brew you a fresh pot, he said quickly. A few minutes will be fine, soldier, Kersey replied with a smile. I appreciate it. Yes, sir, the soldier said, and then rushed off into the kitchen to start making the brew. Kersey looked around, watching a few soldiers enjoying some breakfast together. They looked to be in their early 20s, with close-cropped hair and relatively clean fatigues. The captain walked over to them and leaned on the table. Would you boys mind if I join you while I wait on my coffee? He asked. They looked up at him with eyes wide as saucers, and then quickly sat up straight, muttering garbled, Yes, sirs, through their mouthfuls. Relax, boys, no need to get formal on my account, Kersey said with a chuckle and took a seat. Once their shoulders relaxed, he offered his hand. As I'm sure you know, I'm Captain Kersey, he said. I'm Private Tyler, the shorter one said, and this is my friend, Private Jack. The captain nodded. It's good to meet you, boys. Likewise, sir, Jack replied as they shook hands. So where are you two from? Kersey asked. Tyler laughed nervously. Believe it or not, we're both from Kentucky. Kentucky, huh? The captain asked. That's God's country, without a doubt. When the two privates shared a pointed look, he cocked his head. You don't think your home state is God's country? If you saw our hometown, you might not think so, Tyler replied dryly. Kersey chuckled. Fair enough, he replied. But the counterpoint to that is that Kentucky is home to all that sweet, sweet bourbon. They nodded, cracking smiles. True, Jack said. It is the nectar of the gods. Tyler hummed with approval. It was always one of the foundations of my family's food pyramid. Wait a second, Kersey said, raising his palms. Are you even old enough to drink bourbon? Tyler smirked. I am in Kentucky, sir. They shared a laugh, and then the captain asked, so are you boys hanging in there? As good as can be expected, sir, Jack admitted. Tyler nodded in agreement. Things are going a lot smoother now than they did in KC. You boys were in Kansas City, Kersey asked, eyebrows rising. They both nodded, gazes darkening. We weren't in the front lines, mind you, Jack said. Tyler sighed. If we were, we probably wouldn't be here talking to you. Jack nodded, but we saw enough to make us worry about coming up here. But, but, Tyler said quickly, holding up a finger. The way you have been running things has put all of us at ease. It's true, Jack added. The train ride up here, the general mood amongst the men was that we were being shuffled to another suicide mission. 
but once we got into it, we started feeling like it was survivable. Kersey smiled, relieved to hear he had the backing of the men. I really appreciate you boys saying that, he said, pressing his palms together. I'm trying my best to keep everybody as safe as possible. So Captain, Tyler said, setting down his spoon. Are they gonna let you lead the assault on Seattle? Kersey laughed, the absurdity of the situation that this was a legitimate question suddenly striking him. He looked up and saw David standing at the entrance to the cafeteria, giving him the thumbs up to let him know it was time for the call. The captain got to his feet. Looks like I'm about to go find out. He held out his hand and shook with both of them again in turn. You have our vote, Captain, Tyler said. Jack nodded firmly. Without a doubt. You boys be safe out there, Kersey said, and walked back to the counter, where the soldier set a mug and a small thermos out for him. Here you go, sir, he said. If you need more, come back and see me. The captain took a deep breath and smiled. Appreciate it, he said, and picked up his drink. As he stepped out of the cafeteria, David pushed off of the wall where he'd been leaning. Meeting starts in a few minutes, he said. The line just went live. He held out a stack of papers. Kersey took them with his free hand, tucking them under his arm. What's this, he asked. Some local maps of Seattle and nearby surrounding areas, David explained. We don't have the ability to do video via satellite uplink yet, hoping for later today, but this should keep you on the same page as everyone else. The captain smiled with relief. Appreciate it, he said, and watched the kid run off to his comm room. Kersey took a deep breath and then headed down the hallway for the most important meeting of his life. Chapter 10 Kersey sat at his communications setup, sipping on his hot coffee. He slipped on the headset that David had set up for him and could hear various chatter from several people. Nobody seemed to be talking to anyone on the line, just other people they were sitting with on their end. After several moments, the bulk of the chatter ceased. Within moments, a booming voice began to speak, belonging to President Williams. Good afternoon, everybody, he said, cutting through the voices to make his presence known. There was dead silence allowing him to continue. Thank you for joining us. Is General Stevens on the line? Yes, Mr. President, Stevens replied. Good, we can get started with the planning session then. The president replied and took a breath. Mr. President, the general cut in. Apologies for interrupting. There was a short pause, and then Williams said, Go ahead, general. I have invited Captain Kersey to join us on this call, Stevens said. Captain, are you there? Kersey cleared his throat, his heart rate doubling as he said, Yes, general, I am. Captain Kersey is the one who successfully planned and executed the clearing of Spokane, Stevens continued. From what I understand, he employed some unique strategies, and I felt like his experience and knowledge would be of benefit. General Adams' gruff voice cut in. With all due respect, General, we've been planning the Seattle operation for quite some time now. I understand that, General, Stevens replied quickly. But after Kansas City, I think we can all agree that having some successful on-the-ground experience could be worth listening to. Wouldn't you agree? There was a tense moment of silence before the president spoke up. General Adams, I don't think there is any harm in hearing what the captain has to say about his tactics for Spokane, 
Does anybody disagree with that? There was a chorus of no, sir, across the line from various sources. Welcome, Captain Kersey, Williams said. I look forward to hearing your insights. Kersey sat up straight in his chair. It's my pleasure, Mr. President. He was amazed he was able to keep his voice level. Before we get started, Williams said, allow me to introduce the rest of the people in the room. General Adams has been overseeing the nationwide response to this crisis. We also have John Teeter and Whitney Hill, who have been overseeing the strategy and logistics of the various operations. Good to meet you all, Kersey said politely. So I'll open up the floor, the president began. Where do we want to begin? I suggest that before we get into the plan for Seattle, that we address the nearby threats of Vancouver and Portland, a woman spoke up, presumably Whitney. Very well, Williams agreed. Please proceed. Vancouver poses a significant risk to this operation, with roughly two and a half million in the metro area pre-war, she continued. Satellite images have shown that the streets are packed full of zombies, leading us to estimate that anywhere from a quarter to one half of the metro population is outside and mobile. Miss Hill, General Stevens cut in. Apologies for the interruption, but how far is Vancouver from Seattle? No worries, General, Whitney replied airily. It's about 140 miles from downtown to downtown, and with the speed these things move, we could be facing an overwhelming northern battlefront within a few days of the operation starting. She paused. And this doesn't include the tens of thousands of zombies in the lesser populated areas that could find their way to the interstate and have a direct path to our troops. Our most conservative estimate is that the northern front of our forces could see significant numbers within 24 hours, assuming we do nothing, that is. And what sort of action do you recommend, Miss Hill? The president asked. My team has analyzed the area and suggest we destroy the four main bridges over the Fraser River, which is just south of the downtown area of Vancouver, she replied. While this won't completely solve our problem, my team estimates that it will cut off anywhere from 60 to 80% of the creatures, trapping them on the other side of the river. What's the likelihood that they'll be able to navigate the river and get across? Adams cut in. Minimal, she replied calmly. For every thousand that try, no more than five or six will find their way across. However, based on reports from the field, the likelihood of significant numbers venturing into the water is minimal at best. Adams made a noise of approval. Thank you, Miss Hill. Have we been able to get in touch with the Canadian government? Williams asked. My colleague will be able to answer that better than I will, Whitney admitted. Thank you, Miss Hill, John piped up. Mr. President, we have attempted every communication we can think of and only have been able to reach mid-level ministry heads, with none of them knowing how to reach the prime minister or his immediate cabinet. Do we know if they still have a functioning government? The president asked. We do not, John admitted. However, everyone that we spoke to that has even a modicum of power was in full agreement of our plan to destroy the bridges in Vancouver. However, they did have a request that I promised I would run by everyone. What would they like in return? Williams asked. Assuming that our operation is successful, they would like help in pacifying Vancouver so that they can join us in setting up a safe zone for their people, John replied. There was a short pause before the president said, I suppose that's a better option than openly invading their territory. That was our thought too, Mr. President, John said. 
With your permission, I will relay our agreement to their terms once we conclude here. Make it so, Williams agreed. Miss Hill? Stevens asked. Yes, General? Whitney asked. He took a deep breath. If we cut off the bulk of the zombies from Vancouver, do you have an estimate on how many could potentially find their way to our northern front? He asked. Honestly, it's just speculation on my part, she admitted. Please, give me your best guess, he encouraged her. I promise I won't hold you to it. There was a ripple of chuckles throughout the lines, and then Whitney sighed. Could be anywhere from a 100,000 to half a million over the course of a week that comes down, she said. There was a drawn-out silence on the line as everyone digested those numbers. That, Stevens trailed off, and then cleared his throat. That is not an insignificant amount. No, General, it is not, Whitney agreed. However, it is far better than the potential two million or so. Kersey poured over his small map of the area north of Seattle, tracing his finger along the interstate before stopping on the town of Burlington. While it was small, he could see a river running through it. General, if I may, he spoke up. I believe I have a solution to this problem. Stevens didn't hesitate. By all means, Captain. If you have maps available, look at the town of Burlington, Kersey said. There was a brief silence on the line, as everyone presumably looked at their maps. Captain, we're looking at satellite imagery, not Google Maps, Whitney finally said, though not unkindly. Can you give us a little more info other than the town name? Kersey shook his head at his bone-headed move. My apologies, give me just a moment, he said, and checked the map legend, checking how long a mile and 10 miles was. Take your time, Whitney replied gently. He measured it out using his fingers, estimating the distance from downtown Seattle to Burlington. It looks to be 60 to 70 miles to the north of downtown Seattle, right on the interstate. I'm using a map that was torn out of a middle school textbook, so forgive me if my measurements aren't exact. There was another ripple of chuckles, and Williams playfully said, You have quite the resourceful captain there, General Stevens. I can see why you promoted him. Stevens barked a laugh. What can I say, Mr. President? I know talent when I see it. Kersey shook his head and then cleared his throat. Miss Hill, look for a river along the interstate. That should get you to where I'm looking. He stared at the small town as she looked, with two bridges running over a river. Okay, Captain, Whitney finally said. We're looking at what you are. Looks like there is an interstate bridge over the river, as well as a city street one just to the east of it. Captain, I appreciate you contributing and all, but if we are going to reach the Western Canadian oil fields after this mission, we can't be out here destroying bridges over the interstate, Adams cut in. Unless you know a good construction crew, that is. He laughed, and there were a few chuckles that sounded to be further away in the room where he was. Kersey waited a beat, and then spoke. General, I appreciate your attempt at levity, as it is especially needed in dark times like these, he said no amount of humor in his voice. However, if you would let me make my point, you would know that I wasn't suggesting we blow up the bridge. There was a moment of awkward silence, and then Adams replied. You have my apologies, Captain, he said with a touch of dejection. Please proceed with your point. Thank you, General, Kersey replied, and cleared his throat again, leaning over the map. My suggestion is that we send in a covert team before the full-scale attack begins, 
and have them secure the bridge. There should be enough vehicles in the area that a fortified barricade can be constructed. While it won't be enough to withstand the full brunt of a hundred thousand strong horde, it should be enough to buy time to get a stronger force up there once the invasion force has been moved into theater. In addition to that, part of the covert team can be diverted to the north of the bridge, taking up residence on top of buildings near the interstate, acting as a diversion. I might add that this diversion technique worked very well for Captain Kersey in his assault on Spokane, Stevens piped up. I like the idea and think it could be quite effective, John added. My only concern is how to get this covert team onto the bridge without detection. Kersey took a deep breath, straightening up in his chair. An airdrop would be the most effective way, he suggested. Find the closest rural area, drop them in, and let them go to work. Do you have a backup plan, though? John asked. Because not only is our naval fleet another day out, but we are severely limited when it comes to aircraft. We had to ditch most of our air and watercraft in order to make room for troops during the evacuation. The captain nodded. Well, just this morning, we were able to secure a municipal airfield that is only about 100 miles from the target. And there were several consumer-grade aircrafts that appear to still be in working order, he explained. I have a team of mechanics inspecting it now, so by tomorrow, I should have the ability to drop in a team right where they need to go. How many troops are we talking? John asked. Kersey cocked his head, mentally calculating. 30, maybe 40, more than enough to get the job done. That works for me, John replied. There was a moment where Kersey assumed the president's men were all looking around at each other for approval. Captain, I believe we are all in agreement here, Adams finally said. Make whatever preparations you need to be mission ready by this time tomorrow. Kersey nodded. Yes, sir. Does everybody feel comfortable with the plan for the North? Williams asked. And after a chorus of, yes, Mr. President, he continued. Good. Now let's move on to the Southern problem. Miss Hill, if you would, please. Thank you, Mr. President, Whitney replied. Portland poses another risk due to the two and a half million in pre-war metro population. We had numerous discussions about taking out the I-5 bridge over the river, which would have cut off a significant portion of the threat, but ultimately decided against it. Pardon me, Miss Hill, Williams cut in, but may I ask why? To put it bluntly, she replied, it came down to future planning and expansion. If we destroy that bridge, it could take years, even decades, to rebuild it. And that's assuming that our stadium shelters were able to secure the proper engineers and workers with the capability to design and build it. Williams sighed. I'm just concerned that we are potentially risking the success of this mission on plans we may not be able to act on for years, if at all, he admitted. I understand, Mr. President, Whitney assured him. But there is another issue at hand. There were sharp clicking noises as she typed on her keyboard, and Kersey waited patiently for the president to look at whatever it was she was bringing up on her screen. What am I looking at? Williams asked. A massive zombie horde, she replied. It's hard to get a read on the size, but it's easily in the tens of thousands. Could be approaching a 100,000. The president gasped. What are they doing that far away from the city? Unknown, Whitney admitted. Our best guess is that something or someone got their attention and has been leading them out of the city. Williams paused, a dead silence falling over the line. 
Are you saying there are survivors in Portland? He asked. If I was forced to place a bet, I would say yes, Whitney said. A couple thousand zombies in the middle of nowhere could be a coincidence. This many is most likely deliberate. So even if we took out the bridge over the river, we would still have to deal with this group. What's your recommendation? Williams asked immediately. Surgical strikes within the city itself, she replied. Draw the zombies back to where they came, and hopefully be enough to keep them there during our fight for Seattle. The president paused, and then asked, what about the survivors, assuming there are any? I have a dedicated member of my team who is poring over satellite feeds from the last week to try and identify where the survivors might be, Whitney explained. We are going to be taking our best guess as to their whereabouts and selecting the targets accordingly. I have faith that you and your team will do everything in your power to limit civilian casualties while still accomplishing the objective, Williams said firmly. Thank you, Mr. President, Whitney replied. He took a deep breath. Are there any other issues that need to be brought up for our northern and southern flanks? He asked. There was a chorus of negatives from his room, and then General Stevens said, I have nothing else to add, Captain. I'm good as well, Kersey replied. Very well, Williams said. Next up, Seattle. Mr. President, Stevens piped up. Before we get started, I would like to request that Captain Kersey go over what he found to be effective during the Spokane operation. Very well, General, Williams replied. Captain Kersey, the floor is yours. Kersey gulped and took a deep breath, calming his racing heart. He knew his persuasiveness could mean the difference between lives lost and sustained. Thank you, Mr. President, he began and cleared his throat. For the Spokane operation, I had very little resources to work with. I only had a few thousand men, limited ammunition, and a single helicopter with offensive capabilities. Due to these limitations, a stand-up fight was not going to be possible. I'm sorry, stand-up fight? Williams cut in. What do you mean by that? Kersey leaned forward in his chair. Essentially a firing line, he explained, where we would set up troops on the interstate and draw them to us, gutting them down as they come at us. I understand, Williams said. Kersey nodded. With these limitations, I employed a plan that basically broke down into three components, he continued. Distraction, containment, and cleanup. The goal was to ensure that the bulk of my force was never in a position to get overwhelmed, which was where the distraction element came in. On a large scale, I had troop clusters spread throughout the city, with a team at the island park in the center, as well as a team on the western front. Their primary goal was to attract as much attention to themselves as possible, which would distract from my main force moving in from the east. How big were these strike teams? John asked. Kersey wrapped his hands around his mug. Initially, they were between 50 and 75. My western team eventually required 100 men due to higher than expected casualties while setting up the initial blockade on the bridge. May I ask what happened? John cut in politely. Kersey took a deep breath. A few men behind the front lines were ambushed by some zombies and quickly became runners, he explained. The majority of the men were concentrating on a group coming their way, so they never saw the runners coming. If it wasn't for a combination of quick thinking and extremely good luck, it could have derailed the entire operation. There was a short silence, and then Williams asked, Something on your mind, John? It can wait, John assured him. Please, Captain, continue. 
Kersey nodded. In addition to the large-scale diversion teams, I had smaller teams that went a couple miles ahead of the main force, he said. We managed to commandeer some transfer trucks, which allowed us to send in these eight to ten man groups to shopping centers to create a hub of activity. This not only allowed them to pick off zombies, but made the job of the main force that much easier. Captain, I know you had casualty issues with the larger diversion forces, Adams cut in gruffly. What was the rate for these smaller teams? Kersey smiled to himself. We had a broken ankle when one man slipped off of the ladder and landed hard on the top of the truck. There was a stunned silence. No deaths? Adams asked. No, sir, Kersey replied, shaking his head. Not with these teams in Spokane. The general clucked his tongue. That's an odd way of parsing things, Captain, he drawled. Is there something you would like to inform us about? We had a few deaths the day before with one of those teams, Kersey admitted. But it was entirely due to a sergeant not following orders and endangering the mission. He has since been dealt with accordingly. Thank you, Captain, Adams replied. I have to admit, your distraction plan is intriguing, John piped up. We are facing an enemy for all its strengths that is thankfully quite dumb. But I am curious about the containment portion of your plan. Kersey took a deep breath. This was born out of necessity, and initially I wasn't sure how well it was going to work. But pleasantly surprised at how effective it was, he admitted. My main force was tasked with two objectives. Eliminate every zombie out in the open, and make sure that every structure they came across was secure. If it was locked up tight, or could easily be made so, it was marked, and they moved on. Even if there were zombies inside? Whitney asked. That's correct, Kersey said. If the creatures weren't an immediate threat, I treated them as such. What if a structure wasn't securable? She asked. A small team was broken off to clear it as quickly as possible, before they continued moving, he explained. And what sort of plan did you have for the contained threat? Whitney asked. Kersey leaned back in his chair. We had a nominal force that trailed the main group that would clear every one of the structures, he replied. It was extremely time-consuming, but with proper safety protocols, we were able to clear the city with minimal casualties, even if it took some time. Based on what you've seen with Seattle, do you think a similar plan can be enacted here? John piped up. The captain took a deep breath. I do, he said. However, it is going to require a lot more steps and a lot more moving parts to make it so. In the Seattle metro area, we are going to be facing anywhere from three to four million of those things. And I don't know what kind of forces you have on the ships, but we only have 165,000 men on this side of things. Captain, with the ships we will have for this assault, you can expect an additional 40 to 50,000 troops, Adams cut in. I can get you exact numbers. I just don't have them in front of me. Understood, General, Kersey replied. Captain Kersey, please stand by, Williams said suddenly. I need to put you on hold for a moment. The captain nodded. Of course, Mr. President. As the line went silent, Kersey reached over and grabbed his thermos, filling up his coffee mug. Thoughts raced through his mind like wildfire. He wondered if they were taking his information seriously, or if this was just another lip service moment he'd experienced numerous times throughout his military career. His heart sank a bit as he thought about all of the times his advice to higher-ups could have saved lives, watching helplessly 
as it was dismissed due to someone wanting to make a name for themselves by putting their own plan in place. The line clicked back on, and he blinked away his dark thoughts. Captain Kersey, you with us? Williams asked. He nodded. Yes, Mr. President. We've discussed things on our end, Williams replied. And based on what you've told us, we would like to hear your thoughts on how you would handle the Seattle invasion if you were in charge. While our teams have been working on a comprehensive invasion plan, I feel like it would be worthwhile to hear your thoughts on the matter. Kersey blinked rapidly, mouth opening and closing until he finally stammered. Of, of course, Mr. President. He cleared his throat, suddenly dry as the Sahara. May I request a short recess so that I can give the map a once-over and come up with a rough plan? Of course, Captain, Williams replied. Let's reconvene in ten. Chapter 11 Everyone in the presidential war room got situated, gathering around their respective microphones as the sound of shuffling papers came through on Kersey's end. Captain Kersey, are you ready? Williams asked, leaning forward and folding his hands together on the table. Yes, Mr. President, the captain replied, voice coming through loud and clear. Williams nodded to his colleagues, who were ready with their writing implements. Please proceed. The way I see it, Kersey began, with the overwhelming force of three to four million zombies, our only real chance at success is going to be breaking them up and pulling them in numerous directions. I don't have access to satellite imagery, but I would assume the streets of downtown are packed with these ghouls. Whitney leaned forward. Yes, Captain, she confirmed. The downtown areas of both Seattle and Tacoma are quite dense, as are the streets of the suburbs to the north, south, and east of downtown. Thank you, Miss Hill, Kersey replied. With this in mind, our number one target should be Mercer Island, which is in the lake just to the east of downtown Seattle. Williams inclined his head to Whitney. Can you pull that up, please? He asked. She typed on her laptop for a moment, and then zoomed in on the island. It was relatively large, with numerous neighborhoods and a massive retail district on the north side. The interstate ran across the northern part, the only connection to the east and west banks of the river. Adams grunted. That looks all kinds of problematic. How so, General? Kersey asked politely. Adams waved his hand at the screen dismissively. Well, for starters, it looks heavily developed, especially on the north end. Development can help us if we use it properly, Kersey replied. The general wrinkled his nose with distaste, but looked at the president for his input. Miss Hill, do we have any information on the island? Williams asked. Whitney began to dig through the papers in front of her. I would imagine so, just need a moment, she said, and handed a stack over to John. He looked through his own papers, and then consolidated hers with what he had. Okay, got it, he said. There were 26,000 residents pre-war. And with only one road leading off the island, Whitney pointed out, it's a good bet most of them are still there. Williams took a deep breath. Captain? Before we get into logistics on how to take the island, he said into the microphone, why do you think it should be the top target? Just like in real estate, it's all about location, 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 Kersey replied, eliciting a chuckle from the room. With the proximity to downtown and the heart of the eastern suburb, if we can get a large enough force on there, even 500 men, 
He could draw a large number of zombies from both sides. John drew his bottom lip between his teeth for a moment, and then leaned forward. Captain, there are other islands near Seattle, he pointed out. Like Vashon Island to the west of downtown, for example. That one is only accessible via ferry, so the odds of it having significant opposition would be minimal. I agree with you and believe that Vashon Island has a role to play, Kersey said. However, Mercer Island is vital to getting the bulk of the ground force into action. If we can draw the attention of the eastern suburbs towards the island, it will make it easier for our troops to push to the waterfront. Without that distraction, you'll have every zombie coming at them instead of 50, 60%. And while that might not sound like much, it could be the difference between holding them off and being overrun. This is one of the things that went wrong in Kansas City, Stevens added. Hordes became too big and dense, and we couldn't kill them fast enough without our positions becoming overrun. Once that happened, it was a chain reaction with the runners multiplying quickly. Adams grunted. We still have the issue of getting enough men on the island to make a difference, he argued, clenching his fists on the table. If the opposition is as dense as it appears to be in the suburbs, pushing through on the ground isn't an option. Then we come in by air and by sea, Kersey cut in. The general shook his head. Remember, Captain, he said firmly. Boats and aircraft are at a premium. We do have a small fleet of single-engine aircrafts that can make airdrop runs, Kersey replied. Adams pursed his lips and crossed his arms. Even so, the question is, where would we land them? Whitney, can you zoom into the southeast portion of the island? John asked, pointing to the screen. He hummed as she did so, focusing on a dense patch of woods. If I didn't know better, I'd say that looks like a park. Adams scoffed. I take it you've never jumped out of an airplane, John. Still on the bucket list, I'm afraid, John admitted. The general pressed his palms flat on the table. Landing in trees is exceedingly dangerous, not to mention painful, even if it goes correctly. More painful than landing in a pack of zombies? John shot back, and Adams leaned back in his chair, clamping his jaw shut. So, Captain, William spoke up. Let's say you land a small force into the woods. What good would 50 men be against a horde that size? On their own, not much, Kersey admitted. However, that should be a large enough force to secure the bridges. John shook his head, brow furrowing. Why not just blow them up, he asked. Because we want to fill them with as many zombies as we can, Kersey explained. Not only does it make for easy targeting, it takes more of them off of the battlefield. All we need are some trucks on the bridges, and we'll be off and running. Whitney raised her hand. My team can help with that, she piped up. That way they would know exactly where they are going. So what would the plan be for the truck drivers who secure the bridge? Williams asked into the microphone. The way these trucks are built, it is going to be virtually impossible for a horde to tip them over, Kersey explained. They would just need to sit tight until reinforcements arrive and clear them a path. Williams took a deep breath. And if reinforcements can't reach them, then we have bigger issues on our hands than a few soldiers being stranded, the captain replied dryly. There was another pregnant pause as the room let that comment sink in. What about reinforcements, though? John finally asked. I'm assuming that we are limited in terms of fuel and parachutes. We are, Kersey admitted, which is why once the bridges are secured, we can bring in more troops via boats. Adams leaned forward, unable to keep quiet any longer.
Once again, he said, struggling to keep his voice level. Our Navy jettisoned the bulk of the onboard crafts to make room for more troops. I'm not opposed to the idea of troops being landed via boats. I just don't know where we are getting them from. I think I can help with that, Whitney cut in, typing rapidly on her laptop. The images on the screen shifted to the islands to the west of downtown. She zoomed in on Vashon Island on the coast. There were numerous dots along the beach. What are we looking at? Williams asked, cocking his head. She pointed to the beach. Boats, she said. Lots of them. I would imagine that a lot of the isolated islands like this are going to be the same story. People in a panic to go where they think it's safe, only it's not. Adams hummed in approval and leaned forward. We should have the resources to get a few men onto the islands, he agreed. Start with ferrying them back and forth with the main ships and deploy that way. It's going to be time consuming, but it's doable. So you approve of this course of action, General? Williams asked, raising an eyebrow. Adams nodded. I think at the very least it is worth considering, he admitted. So where should we focus on next? The president asked, looking up at the screen. Whitney typed away on the laptop, moving the satellite imagery up to the interstate to the north. She stopped on the town of Everett, about 30 miles to the north. This should be our northern flank entry point, she said. Go ahead, William said, waving a hand at her. Using the captain's strategies, she began. We can use the airport to the immediate north in Arlington to land troops who can secure the I-5 bridge over the inlet here. This will create a buffer zone between the downtown area and the squad to the north, blocking whatever comes at us from Vancouver. There appears to be plenty of retail stores in the buffer zone, so finding trucks for the local diversion zones won't be an issue. Miss Hill, Kersey cut in. The fuel situation is extremely limited with these planes, so outside of an initial trip, I wouldn't plan on there being too many more. Now, if there is a well-stocked fuel depot at the airport, we might be okay. I just don't think we should make the plan hinge on that. Whitney pursed her lips for a moment. What about moving the troops on the ground, she asked. I have the buses to make it happen, he replied. How long do you think that would take, Williams asked. There was the sound of rustling papers again and then Kersey replied. I'll be honest, Mr. President, I don't have the intel to give you a proper answer on that. In theory, I would say a matter of hours. However, I can't tell you the path they would be able to take to get there. These middle school textbooks weren't big on detail. Whitney chuckled. Don't worry, Captain, my team will be able to provide you with a proper route. In that case, yes, I can get you a force relatively quickly, Kersey replied. Adams leaned forward. How big are we talking, he asked. Off the top of my head, Kersey paused. 1,500 to 2,000 a trip. The general nodded. Between a couple of those trips and some shuttling of forces from the Navy vessels, that should give us a significant force up there within a day or so. It sounds like we have the northern part of this operation squared away pretty well, Stevens piped up, at least in broad strokes. What do you see happening to the east? The I-90 looks to be the center line for the battlefield, Kersey replied. It cut straight across, running over Mercer Island and directly into the heart of downtown. Getting a significant amount of men in there can cut the eastern battlefield into northern and southern segments. Adams crossed his arms. Seems awful risky to put the bulk of our forces where they'll be on a two-front battle, he mused. 
Wholeheartedly agree, General, Kersey admitted. Based on my limited intel, it looks like there is a highway that branches off of I-90 and heads south through whatever national park that is and comes out near Tacoma. Whitney nodded and leaned forward. You are correct, Captain, she said as she scanned her screen. It cuts through Tiger Mountain State Forest and comes out about 20 miles to the south of downtown Seattle. We can move a force down there and get them breaking up the hordes to pull them to the south, Kersey replied. John cocked his head in thought. Captain, how effective do you find it to fire from the water, he asked. If we spared some boats and had them patrol the water near the coastline, would that be able to act as another distraction? We had minimal success with that in Spokane, Kersey admitted. The gunfire attracted some to the waterfront. However, if we can find party boats with sound systems, it would be better. John shook his head. Given that it rains 200 days a year, the odds of us finding a party boat are pretty slim. He paused as the room chuckled and then nodded. We will keep an eye out nonetheless. Does anybody have any concern about the zombies in Seattle heading north towards our force? Williams asked. Sounds like they're blocked off pretty well thanks to the lake and Mercer Island. But what's to stop them from heading north? There was a moment of contemplative silence, and then Kersey spoke up. It might be possible to get some trucks to the main arteries leading out of the downtown area, he mused. But it is going to require the limited air support we have to thin the herd on the road. However, everyone waited expectantly, and finally Williams asked, However what, Captain? Of all the things we are planning, this has the least likely chance at success, Kersey said slowly. Those trucks are powerful, but a big enough horde can jam them up and break them down. Given how deep they have to get, this very well could be a suicide mission. His voice broke a touch at the end. Adams took a deep breath. I understand, Captain, he said, voice gentler than it had been the whole meeting. It's never easy sending men into battle, knowing that they probably aren't coming back in one piece. Just keep focused on the mission at hand. These boys know what we're fighting for, so they'll answer the call. Yes, sir, Kersey replied firmly. John rubbed his chin. Are there any viable options to slowing down zombies coming south out of downtown? He asked. It looks like everything is over land with no obvious choke point, Kersey replied. From the looks of it, the intersection of the 405 and the 5 just to the east of the airport would be the only spot to slow them down. But I don't see how we could successfully block it, given the number of lanes and overpasses. Whitney shrugged. We could always blow it up, she suggested. Adam shook his head immediately. If we do that, we won't have any way of rebuilding, he said, pressing his palms flat on the table. I'm not a fan. It's not like this is over water, it's a surface street, she replied, inclining her head to him. We wouldn't need to rebuild it, just clear it out. Not going to be the smoothest stretch of road, but I think a few potholes is a price worth paying if it slows down a horde. Williams laced his fingers together in front of him. How effective do you think that would be, he asked. These things like to go the path of least resistance, so interstates are usually high traffic zones. Kersey piped up. It could cut them down enough to buy our boys some time. Williams nodded. Miss Hill, please add that to your list, he instructed. Figure out what you would need to make that happen. 
Yes, Mr. President, Whitney replied as she scribbled on her notepad. Captain Kersey, or anybody really, Stevens spoke up. Are there any ideas for opening another front from the Southwest, from Olympia or just past it? I'm afraid our Southern force might get overwhelmed if we get too much of a response from both sides. Tacoma isn't that small after all. Whitney clacked away at her keyboard, and the screen shifted to south of Tacoma, zooming out so they could see a hundred mile radius around it. The entire southeast portion of the map was green, except for the white peaks of Mount Rainier. Adams leaned forward, studying the screen. From the looks of it, he mused, unless we have a significant mountain climbing unit and can wait a week for them to traverse it on foot, I don't think that's an option. What about using some of the commandeered boats and shuttling some down, John suggested. Adams shook his head. We're already going to be stretched thin taking over Mercer Island and moving men to the northern flank, he pointed out. On top of that, it remains to be seen just how much fuel we're going to have with these, and that's a long haul going the entire length of the Puget Sound. John sighed, and I'm guessing that's the same situation with the aircraft. You are correct, Kersey confirmed. Whitney raised her hand again. I have an idea, she said. By all means, Miss Hill, William said, motioning to her. She zoomed in on the west coast, showing a small bay about 40 miles to the west of Olympia. We land a ship here, offload, and send them up the highway. Still short on landing craft, Adam said with an exasperated sigh. Whitney shook her head. Never said anything about any landing craft, General, she said calmly. He cocked his head and regarded her, eyebrow raised. Go on. She ruffled through some of the papers to her right. It looks like the smallest ship in the Navy fleet has just under 2,000 men, she said. Is that correct? I believe so, Adams replied. Well, she continued, pointing up at the screen. This bay is right on the ocean, so we just get it up to speed and beach it. John's brow furrowed. But we would essentially be sacrificing that ship. Your point? Whitney asked. Zombies don't have a navy, and destroying one small ship is worth it if it helps us pacify Seattle, just saying. She leaned back in her chair, and everyone else at the table looked around at each other, contemplating her words. General Adams, Williams finally said with a nod, talk with some of the ship captains and see who you think is most capable of pulling this off. I'm assuming they don't teach this maneuver at the academy. Adams shook his head. If they do, Mr. President, then I must have been absent that day. Same here, Stevens added, and a chuckle rippled across the room. General Stevens, Williams said into the microphone, does this alleviate your concerns about the southern flank of your main force? It does, Mr. President, Stevens replied. Thank you. Captain Kersey, is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap this up? Williams asked. Yes, Mr. President. Kersey replied. One thing that really helped with keeping those things occupied were sniper clusters. We were fortunate enough to locate a civilian helicopter pilot with his own craft, and he spent the bulk of the battle airlifting snipers onto rooftops in downtown. They were not only able to have a bird's eye view of the battlefield, but could pick off and occupy large numbers of them. I understand the need to have snipers embedded with ground teams, but if you have some to spare, it's a worthwhile investment. Adams nodded.
Noted, Captain, he replied. I'm sure we can spare a few, as long as you wouldn't mind us borrowing your helicopter pilot. Fair warning, Kersey said with mirth in his tone. He's a salty Vietnam vet. Adams barked a laugh. Be careful, Captain. Sounds like you were describing me there. More laughter rippled through the room. Wouldn't dream of it, General, Kersey promised, and then took a beat before coming back, a little more somber. There is one more suggestion I'd like to make, although I don't know how well it's going to be received. The room fell silent, all trace of levity gone from their faces. What is it, Captain? Williams prompted. The Spokane operation was in danger of being derailed due to bites. Kersey began slowly. Now my men did everything they could given the circumstances. I'm not suggesting otherwise. However, it's my belief that there should be a firm and swift response to any soldier that is bitten. He took a deep breath. And that is a quick execution. The quiet was so thick with shock and blank stares that when John spoke, it made Williams flinch. Captain, John said, drawing out the word. I know how it sounds, Kersey said quickly, and I know it goes completely against our natural instinct. But if one runner gets loose among the troops, this entire operation could fall apart in a hurry. The inhabitants of the war room looked around at each other, eventually giving begrudging nods in Kersey's favor. Captain, Williams finally said, pressing his palms together in front of his chin. Your suggestion is a difficult one to process. However, you are not incorrect. General Adams, please take this under consideration as we move forward. Of course, Mr. President, Adams murmured. Okay, Williams clapped his hands, taking a deep breath. I appreciate everyone's time and energy on this. I believe we have a lot of good information and ideas to build off of. Whitney raised her hand wiggling her fingers to get the president's attention. Yes, Miss Hill, he said, motioning to her. Mr. President, if Captain Kersey isn't too busy, she began, would it be possible for him to sit in with my team as we plan the specifics? I feel as though his insights could be quite helpful. Williams nodded and leaned towards the microphone. Captain Kersey, would you be able to help out? Of course, Mr. President, Kersey replied immediately. Whitney nodded. Thank you, Captain, she said. Please tell your communications leader that someone from my team will be in touch within the hour. We will see what we can do about getting you a proper uplink, unless you have an affinity for middle grade textbooks. No, ma'am, Kersey replied. Wasn't exactly fond of them the first go round. After another round of chuckles, Williams took a deep breath and sat up straight. Everyone, I just want to say how proud I am of the hard work you've put in over this last month he declared. We have been pushed to the brink by this enemy, not just our nation, but all of humanity. Because of your determination, your ingenuity, and in the case of Captain Kersey, your blood, sweat, and tears on the front lines, we are on the verge of gaining a foothold against them. This is the first of many steps towards rebuilding this great nation. We have been on the defensive since our enemy launched their sneak attack. But in 24 hours, we officially go on the offensive he raised a fist. Make whatever preparations you need, because it's go time. Those in the room applauded, and some clapping came through the speaker as well. The president stood up from his chair, prompting everyone else to follow suit. We reconvene tomorrow at 8 a.m. for the final battle plans, Williams said. 
dismissed. He headed out of the room, and Whitney sat back down to gather her documents. Captain Kersey, she asked, will you have time in two hours or so to meet with me and my team? Yes, he replied politely. I'll also let David know that someone from your team will be in touch shortly about getting connected. Thank you, Captain, Whitney replied. Talk soon. Captain Kersey, Adams said gruffly. Yes, General, Kersey replied. Adams took a deep breath and crossed his arms. My apologies for being dismissive earlier, he said in a rare moment of sincerity. You're doing damn fine work out there, and I really appreciate your insights. Thank you, General, Kersey replied. Adams nodded. Stevens, you got a good one on the line, he said, allowing his voice to become jovial. If he keeps this up, he's going to have your job. Stevens chuckled. So nice of you to offer up your position to me so we can free up a spot for the captain, he said. They shared a laugh, and John led the group out of the bunker, leaving Kersey and Stevens alone on the phone. General, anything else for me? Kersey asked. Just this, Stevens replied. I want you to know how proud I am of you. You have far exceeded my expectations, which were already incredibly high. You may think that Adams was joking about you taking over my job, but I assure you that he's not. You've done this country a great service by your actions these last few weeks. Kersey swallowed hard. Thank you, General. No, thank you, Stevens replied. Then he chuckled. Now get back to work. Yes, sir, Kersey replied with a laugh of his own. We will be in touch. In his little communications classroom, the captain sat back in his chair as the line went dead. He spun around to look out the window, coffee in hand. Another batch of troops headed towards the front lines on the interstate. He took a long, contemplative sip, equal parts pleased and relieved that he'd been able to get them to agree to his plans and ideas. He raised his mug to the window. A lot of you might actually make it through this. Chapter 12 Kersey emerged from his calm room, thermos in hand, and saw David sitting on the floor across the hall. So how did it go? David asked, hopping up immediately, eyes wide with excitement. Kersey laughed and shook his head. Not 100% sure, he admitted but they were at least buying some of what I was selling. Look at you, David exclaimed, smacking the captain on the shoulder. Having the ear of the president, pitching him your war plan? Think of how many of your predecessors and contemporaries would kill for that opportunity. Kersey shook his head. You'd be surprised at how short that list is, he said. It's one thing to be responsible for your unit, another thing entirely to have the weight of the world put on your shoulders. David's excitement dampened a bit his eyes muting at the valid point. He took a deep breath and raised his chin. Well, that's why you got people like me, he declared, to help you with your burden. So tell me, how can I help? Kersey shook his empty thermos and smirked. Well, for starters, you can walk and talk so I can get a refill. Done, David replied, and they headed back to the cafeteria. They stepped aside at the door to let a few soldiers exit, who saluted the captain as they passed him. Kersey nodded to them and then opened the door. I'm also going to need you to hook up with someone from DC, he said. It's going to be someone from Whitney Hill's team. What do they need me to do? David asked, as he leaned in the doorway to the cafeteria. 
They're going to work with you in setting up a visual connection, so I can see what they're seeing, Kersey replied. I can handle that, David said with a nod. And wow, they're really looping you into everything, aren't they? The captain chuckled. It would appear so. He glanced over at Copeland sitting off to the side. She said that they'll be in touch within the hour. Better go take care of a few things before that happens, David replied, giving him a wave. If you need anything, you know where I'll be. Thank you, Kersey said. And then the communications expert disappeared back into the hallway, the door swinging shut behind him. The captain approached the counter, and the same soldier from earlier stood there with a smile. He extended his hand, reaching for the thermos, and Kersey nodded and handed it over silently. Copeland stood from his spot, heading over to his pensive superior. Captain, you okay? He asked. Kersey took a deep breath. Yeah, I'm good, he replied, forcing a smile. Just a lot of difficult decisions to make in the coming days. Well, why don't you join me? The sergeant offered. You can tell me where you need me. He jerked a thumb over his shoulder at the table he'd been sitting at. Kersey nodded and grabbed a tray of food and his fresh thermos, offering a smile to the serving soldier before following Copeland to his corner table. So, lay it on me, Captain, the sergeant said, picking up his fork. Kersey cocked his head. How comfortable are you with jumping out of a plane, he asked. Copeland chuckled. Rank somewhere between going behind enemy lines without a weapon and allowing my sisters to give me a makeover, he admitted. Guessing there is some unaddressed trauma there, the captain smirked. The sergeant stared at the ceiling and shuddered. Four older sisters, man, and they had a field day with me when I was younger, he admitted. Just thankful the internet wasn't around back then, or else my promotion probably wouldn't have gone through. The two men broke out into laughter, loud enough to disturb some of the other soldiers eating nearby. One of them glared, but when he realized it was the captain, he quickly smiled and saluted him instead. Kersey mouthed, sorry, and then cleared his throat and turned back to his food. Internet would have totally destroyed my career path too if it had existed, he admitted, quieter this time. The boys and I would get into all sorts of shenanigans. Shenanigans, huh? Copeland asked with a twinkle in his eye. Is that white people talk for criminal activity? They shared a muted laugh this time. Yeah, you could call it that, Kersey admitted. We had this real mean son of a bitch for a history teacher, always yelling and throwing shit our way in class. One of those petty tyrant types who failed at life, so he was taking it out on anybody that was even remotely successful. He took a bite of his slurry and then shook his head. We took it in stride, carefully plotting out revenge. Finally, our time came. Copeland leaned forward. Oh, this ought to be good. That's an understatement, the captain said with a wicked glint in his eye. We had him first period and he was really late. Came in muttering under his breath, pissed off and frazzled. The class was mostly silent as he threw a mini temper tantrum at his desk. Finally, one of the girls in the class asked him what was wrong. He started to yell at her, but collected himself when he noticed it was one of the prettiest girls in the class. The sergeant wrinkled his nose. Guessing there weren't many of you. Lord, no, Kersey replied with a laugh. Anyway, he let slip that he was late because his key broke off in the ignition of the car and that the locksmith wasn't going to be able to get to it until tomorrow. He took a deep breath. Then he made the mistake of telling the class that his car still started. 
Copeland's eyes widened, and he stared at the captain, enraptured in his tail. Oh, it's about to get good, Kersey promised with a smirk. So one of my boys lived in the same neighborhood as this teacher, and he was kind enough to tell us where to strike. That night, three of us paid him a visit. We had a spirited debate on what to do with it. Drive it into a quarry, park it in a hospital zone so it got towed. But my boy Jimmy had the winner. There was a junkyard outside of town, so we took it up there, parked it out front of the main gate, and stole the spark plugs from it so it wouldn't start up. The sergeant covered his face with his hands in a futile attempt to hide his mirth. Let me guess, that didn't go well? No, it did not, Kersey admitted with a dark chuckle. We got to school the next day, and he didn't show up. Finally, about halfway through the period, the principal came in and said he wasn't going to be there because someone stole his car. The principal glared at us, like he knew we did it, but couldn't prove it. We just smiled like the good little angels that we were. Copeland shook his head. Angels, Satan, either way, he quipped. So we got through the school day and got home, Kersey continued, setting down his spoon. As soon as I walked in the door, I got a call from my buddy who lived up the street from the teacher. He was all frantic and said we need to drive by the house. I didn't miss a beat, just dropped everything and rushed back out. As soon as I turned onto his street, I saw a flatbed tow truck sitting outside of his house. The sergeant nodded. Nice of them to bring his car back, he said. You'd think so, Kersey said, and held up a finger. However, his car was now in the form of a compact cube. Copeland snickered and shook his head. We came to find out later that the junkyard had a relatively new employee who was manning the forklift that day, Kersey explained. And he had a car matching that description for the crusher. When he couldn't get it started, he assumed it was the one, so he did his job. The sergeant rubbed his forehead. That's terrible, Cap, he said, chuckling. Just straight up destroyed that man's life. Indirectly, Kersey agreed. Yeah, we did. Indirectly, Copeland asked, raising an eyebrow. You crushed that man's car. Not like teachers have a lot of disposable income, after all. Kersey grimaced. That's more true than you realize, he said. So remember that pretty girl that got him to calm down? Well, because he lost his car, she ended up taking him to school. The sergeant covered his mouth. Oh, no, he groaned quietly. Oh, no is right, Kersey agreed. The principal saw that and got suspicious, so he kept an eye on them. A couple of days later, he found them, uh, enjoying each other's company in the janitor's closet. Copeland barked a laugh. Man, that is some wild shit, he declared. And I thought my high school was bad. I got some stories, let me tell you, Kersey replied, shaking his head and picking up his spoon again. Well, if they are as good as that one, then you should save them up, Copeland suggested. That one was so good that I'm gonna let you throw me out of a perfectly good plane. Kersey laughed and nodded, glad for the levity and dedication from the sergeant. I appreciate that, he said. So you got details for me yet? Copeland asked, stirring his food. Kersey shook his head. Broad strokes right now, he admitted. Basically, you're gonna lead a team to the north to secure a bridge over the river. Sounds easy enough, the sergeant replied, and then shoved a mouthful of mush in his mouth. Well, there's only going to be about 50 of you, the captain drawled. 
and there's a good chance you'll be facing down tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of zombies. Copeland swallowed his mouthful, eyebrows reaching the ceiling. Oh, is that all? He asked, sarcasm evident in his tone. For a second there, I thought this was going to be daunting. Kersey chuckled and sipped his coffee. If you don't mind, whenever you're finished with your meal, I'd like you to check in with David, he said. He's hooking up with DC to get us real-time satellite imagery. Just tell him to request the info for the Northern Canadian Blockade. Have a look at it tonight and give me your thoughts tomorrow. Yes, sir, Copeland replied. You'll have my recommendations first thing in the morning. Kersey nodded and set down his spoon, gathering his thermos and standing up. I appreciate you sharing a meal with me, Sergeant, he said. Anytime, Captain, his companion replied. If you need me, I'll be around, Kersey said, and watched him nod before diving back into his lunch. The captain turned towards the counter and held his coffee mug up to the cafeteria worker in a cheers. Damn fine stuff, sir, keep it up, he called, and the worker smiled and gave him a thumbs up. Kersey headed out of the cafeteria and headed for the school doors. As he exited into the sunlight, he watched the troops in the immediate area, active and rushing around with various preparations and tasks. With the dedication and work ethic they're showing, we're going to get this done, he thought, taking a deep, calming breath. He headed back towards his temporary home a few blocks away, enjoying the brief moment of quiet and the warm sun on his face. As he approached, he saw Corporal Bretz sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair. Bretz, everything okay? Kersey asked, brow furrowing. Just fine, Captain, Bretz replied with a smile. Got tired of sitting inside, thought I would come out for some fresh air. Kersey nodded and walked up the porch steps. Mind if I join you? Please, I could use the company, Bretz replied and motioned to the chair next to him. The captain took a seat, relaxing, and studied his friend's steely expression, clearly still processing the horrors of the bridge. You holding up okay? He asked gently. Bretz groaned, pursing his lips. I really wish people would stop asking me that, he muttered. Sorry, Kersey replied, holding up a hand. Just concerned about you, that's all. The corporal shook his head. A lot of us have seen horrific things the last few weeks, he said. I'm not special, Cap. A lot of those people weren't in charge either, Kersey pointed out. Bretz finally met his gaze, glaring at him. You're in charge. Why isn't anybody concerned about you? Because when I see the bad, it's in the form of names and numbers on a spreadsheet, Kersey replied calmly. For you, it was different. Bretz nodded and then turned his gaze back to the distance, staring off absently. I can buy that, he admitted. And look, I appreciate you and some of the others being worried about me. But the fact is, I'm ready to get back out there. That's good to hear, Kersey admitted, because we're about to get this show on the road. The corporal sat up straight. How soon? 24 hours, the captain replied. Maybe a little longer, depending on where you're at. Bretz cocked his head. And where do you want me to be at? Kersey took a long sip of his coffee and then stroked his chin as he thought. You're one of the most capable soldiers I've had the pleasure of serving with. Don't blow smoke up my ass, Cap, Brett said, shaking his head. We both know what I can do. Just lay it out there for me. 
The captain nodded and set down his thermos. Okay, he said, leaning forward on his knees. I need a team to push far ahead of the front lines to set up a blockade to the north of downtown. There's a bridge over the river, and we need to take it. Another bridge job, Brett said, cracking a self-deprecating smile. Obviously, I'm the natural choice. Kersey returned his smile, relieved at the attitude. In a sea of dangerous jobs, he said, this one is like fighting a great white shark using a spork. Wouldn't be the first time I've faced long odds, Bretz reminded him. Kersey sighed. Not going to lie, I think with you heading this up, it has a good chance of success, he said honestly. But if you aren't up to it, I need to know now. No judgment whatsoever if you don't want to do it. It's just, Captain, Bretz cut in. You've relied on me this long. I can handle it. Kersey let out a deep breath, relieved to hear the corporal say it with the muted bravado in his voice. Of that, I have no doubt. The two sat in silence for a moment, watching the troops run around and more of them roll by on the interstate. This shit is so surreal, Bretz finally said, voice quiet. Kersey nodded and leaned back in his chair. Tell me about it, he agreed, taking a sip of his brew. I just got off a conference call with the president, who wanted to hear my opinion on the biggest military operation in generations, and I essentially told off General Adams. Brett's perked up, eyes wide with appreciation. I was talking about the dead rising and us preparing to invade a major American city, but your thing sounds a lot more interesting, he blurted, and they shared a laugh. Did you really tell off General Adams? In a manner of speaking, Kersey admitted, wrinkling his nose. I was trying to relay a point, and he cut me off by wrongly assuming what I was going to say. So without thinking of who I was talking to, I kind of came back with the, well, if you'd let me finish, kind of sass. Bretz laughed and smacked his thigh. Did you shit a brick? Wish it was a brick, Kersey admitted, shaking his head with a chuckle. Craziest thing about it, though, at the end of the call, he actually apologized to me. The corporal stared at him, open-mouthed. I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. Pretty sure General Stevens was too, Kersey said, taking another sip of coffee. Bratz held up his hands. If money still had any value whatsoever, I would have paid a significant amount of my life savings to see the reaction on his face. You and me both, Kersey agreed, and held up his mug in a toast of solidarity. Bratz took a deep breath tilting his head up to the sun. Probably aren't going to get too many more days like this for a while, he said. Peaceful and actually tolerable in the sunlight? Kersey asked. I think you're right. The corporal smirked. At least it's not the desert, he said. Unless we get shipped off to Nevada, I don't see that as a problem in our future, Kersey replied. Bratz shot him a lopsided grin. That's one detail I wouldn't mind getting, he said. Vegas, baby. Not sure there's much left standing, the captain said. I know one way to find out, the corporal sang. Kersey chuckled, shaking his head. One massive invasion at a time. Well, now that you have a direct line to the president, Brett's teased. Maybe you could suggest that as our next destination? The captain grinned. Okay, I'll get us there, he said, and then pointed a finger at him but it'll be your job to find the strippers. It's Vegas, Cap, Brett said, spreading his arms. 
They'll come naturally, apocalypse or not apocalypse. It's like setting out nectar for hummingbirds. They can't resist it, no matter what's going on outside. Kersey chuckled, relieved to see his friend coming back to his normal self and out of the fog that had hung over him since the last mission. Can I ask you a question? Bretz asked, taking a deep breath. Something important? The captain furrowed his brow and nodded. Of course, whatever you need to ask. Okay, the corporal replied, taking a deep breath and pausing. Um, how do I put this? He spread his hands. How would you feel about grilling out tonight? Kersey barked a laugh and hung his head in his hands. You got me there, buddy, he groaned and sighed. My only concern with that offer would be with what god-awful canned creation would be put on the grill. Oh, not to worry. I put Johnson on the case after he got back from his run with Copeland, Brett said. Kersey raised his head, eyes expectant. Oh, yeah? He asked. Find something? Yeah, that good old redneck actually bagged a deer, the corporal declared. The captain nearly choked on his breath. No shit? Not sure how he pulled it off, but he did. Brett said, grinning from ear to ear. Kersey licked his lips at the thought of fresh meat. Got anything for the sides? Got awful canned creations, Brett's replied. The captain snapped his fingers. Can't win them all. It's a big ass deer, the corporal said, so there will be plenty to go around. Kersey nodded. I'll let some people know then. They sat for a time, smiling and enjoying the moment. That night would be one of enjoyment, one of the last they would be able to have for quite some time. End of book 12. Up next, the Northwest Invasion kicks off with Portland Part 4. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.